Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 5. You heard about the guy, right, that was driving down the highway and an ambulance went racing past him? And the ambulance made a sharp turn and this box fell off the back bumper of the ambulance. So he stopped to pick up the box, thinking it might be important, and he picked it up and he opened it and there was a human toe on ice. So he calls the hospital thinking, this has got to be important. And they said, oh, thank you for calling it, calling us. Thank you, we really need that. And he says, are you going to send an ambulance to pick it up? And they said, no, we'll send a tow truck. (laughs) Sorry, I've been saving that one. (laughs) It's so funny. Last week, we finished off chapter 4. Most of chapter 4 dealt with various parables. We talked at the very beginning that Mark is writing a very concise gospel. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to keep this story moving along. And his favorite word is immediately. You will see it in today's lesson over and over again. So he tends to group things together. Last week, or the last several weeks, it was parables. Although we did end last week with Jesus in the boat during the storm. And I told you that that is one of my favorite passages because of what it reveals about Jesus. The fact that, yes, he is a human. He was tired in the boat. But he's also God because when they woke him up and they were scared to death... He told the wind and the storm to stop, and it obeyed him. And the disciples were terrified. They were terrified because all of a sudden they knew they had somebody in the boat that wasn't just like them. He wasn't just another human being who happened to be a great teacher. You can go find great teachers, and not a one of them ever told a storm to stop, and it stopped. So they knew they had something different. And Jesus chastised them because of their lack of faith. This little faith that they had. Why didn't you understand that I was going to take care of things? And we're going to talk about faith a little bit more today. And we're going to kind of grow on that through the subsequent lessons. Chapter 5 deals with a series of miraculous events. We have one casting out of demons. We have one healing. And on the way to that healing, he happens to heal somebody else. Almost accidentally. They snuck up behind him. So that's chapter 5 that we're going to try to make it through today. We'll see. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gersinans, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, remember they were on one side and they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He was demon-possessed. Now, if you remember, several, several lessons ago, we actually talked about Jesus casting demons out of people. We read this throughout the scripture, and so we had a brief discussion about it then, so we won't talk about it too much. You and I, well, I, 
I've talked to some of you who this isn't true, have never really met someone who is truly demon-possessed. To the best of my knowledge, I haven't. I may have, but I don't remember it. Some of you I have talked to, and you fall into a different category. So we read this and we go, this is really weird. We, 21st century Americans, very logical, very you know, intelligent, believe in science and all that stuff, surely people cannot be demon-possessed. The reality is they can. We have a tendency to believe that demonic forces are just some fairy tale. But the Bible is very clear. They are alive and they are well, and they're doing what they want to do. But I also believe that given the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, showing up on earth at this particular historical time, whatever demonic forces were around were working overtime trying to stop his ministry. So the fact that there seemed to be more of it going on should not necessarily surprise us. So, he comes across the Sea of Galilee, he gets off the boat, and he meets a demon-possessed man. And when he's, Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there came out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, let's talk about this individual for a moment. This individual, being controlled by demonic forces, and as we will see, it's not just a single demon, it is a multitude of demons that are possessing him. This Man who is demon-possessed represents to us man at his ultimate separation from God. Now, we know, because we're going to see it in the next several verses, that God has complete control and authority over the demonic forces. God has allowed the demonic forces certain powers in this earth for this period of time, this dispensation. We wish that wasn't true. I do. But God is working things for his purposes. And sometimes I don't understand that. But what we see in this individual's life when he is taken over by these demonic forces is that he is living a life that represents life apart from God. First off, he's living among the tombs. He is living among death. We were created for relationships. It is not good that man is alone. He needs a relationship. This man, because of the influence of the demonic forces, is separated from human contact. He is living among the dead. He continues to cut himself. Now, this is a strange thing, and it's a phenomenon that we see today also. And I personally have never really understood why you would cut yourself, but people do. Why? Well, you and I know 
that you and I were made in the image of God. We have the image of God in us. And when I am being controlled by demonic forces or severe psychological damage or whatever you want to refer to, I want to get rid of that image. I want to cut it out. I want to remove it so I I am not cursed by being made aware of the fact that I'm made in the image of God. We want to get rid of that which God has placed in us. So he is living among the tombs. He has been bound by the people. I mean, I figured this group of guys goes out and tackles him, puts chains on him, thinking we've got to keep this guy under control. You know, it's like put the straitjacket on him. But they quickly found that in his demonic state, he can break those chains. He can get out of whatever they... So they just have to let him roam the mountains and the tombs. I have this vision, this is just my quirky parenting vision, that mothers at night, if their kids were misbehaving, would tell them, if you misbehave, the guy in the tombs is going to come get you. Don't you think that happened? Don't you think somebody said, that's who's going to come get you? This is the boogeyman. It is. So this man, controlled by demons, turning his back on human relationships, living among the dead, cutting himself, is about to meet Jesus. Now here's the bizarre thing we've already seen. We saw this early on in the book. Human beings have trouble knowing who Jesus is. They see him and they think, ah, he's a great teacher. Ah, he can work miracles. Ah, he's a horrible revolutionary. Ah, he's a false teacher. Ah, something else. They have all of these bizarre ideas. The demonic forces know who he is. There's just an interesting lesson there. The demonic forces, Forces know who Jesus is. And when, they, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, let's just stop there. Why would a demon-possessed man run toward Jesus? Why didn't he run away from Jesus? And I might add, there's actually speculation about this. Either A, there was enough of the human control still there to run toward the potential source of doing something about this demon possession, or B, the demons themselves knew what was coming. They knew they couldn't run far enough. You can run, but you can't run far enough. So they ran toward Jesus and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Remember, verse 1 of the book of Mark. 
Mark is going to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to have disciples acknowledging that he's the Son of God. At the very end of the book, we're going to have a Roman centurion acknowledging that he is the Son of God. And we have demonic forces acknowledging that he is the Son of God. And the demon-possessed man looks at Jesus and says, what do you have to do with us? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. They know what's coming. They know who has the power in this situation. For he was saying to him, for he, Jesus, was saying to him, the demonic man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. The man was full of a large number of demonic forces. Now, a legion technically is about 6,000 guys. Uh, in this context, it probably just means a large number. In a moment, we're going to see a large number of pigs controlled by a large number of demons. So that may give us some idea of how many there are. But suffice it to say, there were a bunch. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demonic forces, begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The demonic forces are begging Jesus not to destroy them, not to remove them from the land. Jesus, for reasons that I don't really know, by the way, gives them permission. He says, okay, leave this guy, and the people say there's a group of pigs. Now, that's how we know we're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, let's just say that right there. Okay, on the other side of the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jewish side, you're not going to see herds of pigs. But hey, we're in the other side. So they see the herd of pigs and they say, let us go there. And they say, and Jesus says, sure, why not? And the pigs, when they are demon possessed, run into the sea and drown. Now it is interesting, by the way, why didn't the demon-possessed man run into the sea and drown before all this occurred? Well, I think I know the answer. He is made in the image of God, even though he is infested with the demonic forces. So, you see the picture, right? Demonic man, Jesus, okay. What's the result of all of this? The herdsmen, the herdsmen who watched the pigs, who just lost all their livelihood, it just ran into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in, in the city and in the country, told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what 
it was that it happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Remember the disciples? They were afraid in the storm. These people in the neighboring community had spent their lives telling their children, the guy in the tombs is going to come get you. The guy in the tombs is crazy. He is evil. He is wicked. And they come up and here the guy is talking in a sensible manner, fully clothed, talking to Jesus. They knew, they, the people coming from the neighboring community, they knew who this guy was. They just didn't know how he had gotten to the point where he no longer was demon-possessed. All they knew is that they didn't know, and it terrified them. What we see in the scripture, what we saw in last week's lesson, when people, are, when people encounter the true power of Jesus, the true power of God, they're usually terrified. There's a reason. There's a reason that in the Christmas story, the angels appear to the shepherds and the sh angels tell them, don't be afraid. Why? because they didn't understand their encounter with the heavenly beings. And that's what we see here. So, and those who, were, who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from that region. Why would they do that? Remember on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus would heal people, and what would happen? They'd bring more people for him to heal. They'd bring more demon-possessed people to remove the demonic forces. They wanted him to stay. They wanted him to take care of them. Here we are on the other side, and they are terrified, and they want him to leave. Why? Number one, they're terrified. Number two, he just destroyed half of their economic interest in one fell swoop. If he, let, if he stayed around for a week, he might destroy the whole community. Who knows? Now, it's an interesting thing here, and we won't talk about it because we're not going to talk about economics, but they lost 2,000 pigs, and they, the community, gained a man who was freed from his demonic power. Now, you and I would sit there and go, that sounds like a pretty fair deal, but it's not our pigs. We might worry if it were our pigs. We might worry if our economic livelihood was impacted by our understanding of who Christ really is. But we don't want to talk about that, right? We want to talk about, oh, I can become a Christian and have no impact on my life at all, really. But it did, and it terrified them. So they begged Jesus to get out of town, and he did. 
And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been, ple- been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to go. That's what you would want to do, right? I don't want to stay back here with all these people who only understand me as a demon-possessed man. I want to go with Jesus. That's what I want to do. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. One of my questions that I've always asked myself is, you know, I become a believer at some age. Why don't I just go home at that point right there? I mean, really, I'm not going to get any more saved. I hope I'm not going to get any less saved because I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Why don't I just go home? Why doesn't Jesus allow this man to leave everybody that he knows and go with Jesus? Because Jesus has a job for him to do. Go tell everybody what's happened to you and tell everybody what the grace is that has been given to you. Let me give you a hint. What are you supposed to be doing while you're still here? While you're still not with physically Jesus? There'll come a time when you, hopefully, will be in heaven. But between now and then, what are you supposed to do? Tell people what happened to you and tell people about the grace that has been bestowed upon you. The grace and mercy that allowed us to be saved. And that's the instructions that Jesus gives to this man. Now, remind ourselves, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee... When Jesus performs a miracle, and he's going to do this in just a moment, when Jesus performs a miracle, what does he tell them? Don't tell anybody. Why? Well, he's going to have an encounter later with the Jewish officials, and it's not going to turn out very well, at least for a moment. But he's not ready for that yet. His time is not ready yet. So he'll heal people and he'll say, don't tell anybody. But on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, over where the pigs live, or did, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he instructs the man, go tell everybody what has happened. I might add, we live on the other side today. Don't think that you're one of those people that Jesus is telling, don't tell anybody. You're not one of those people. You're one of the people that he's telling to tell, okay? And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The Decapolis is a set of 10 cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and that is the area in which this occurred. Miracle number one. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. 
Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Let's just stop right there. There's a crowd. He's doing his teaching. He's doing his thing. And this leader of the synagogue comes to him. This leader of the synagogue is probably not a priest. He's probably a layman. He probably, we don't know, but probably is a Pharisee. Maybe, okay. Most of them, a lot of them were. This is the guy whose buddies have been trying to get rid of Jesus. What happened that all of a sudden, this guy, who's a buddy with the guys who want to get rid of Jesus, comes to Jesus and begs him to do something. Well, the difference is, his daughter is dying. All of a sudden, all the theological arguments, all the discussion about who gets to be the ruler, who gets to be in charge of the spiritual life of Israel, all of that goes out the window. His daughter is dying, and he doesn't know what else to do. So almost out of desperation, he comes to Jesus. There is no other option that he is aware of. And he comes to Jesus and says, please come, my daughter is dying. And Jesus says, sure. So Jesus starts off, all the disciples start off, and a crowd is following them. Okay? You get the picture, right? And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. Did uh, Dr. Ben leave? Somehow there's a joke here about doctors. <laughs> Suffering under many physicians. I have spent in my life one week in the hospital. And halfway through it, I commented to Teresa, is there anything done in this hospital that doesn't involve sticking me with a needle? <laughs> you know, I just had this vision of, oh, let's go stick Kyle with a needle. For what? I don't know. Just do it. He suffered, she suffered under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Once again, she had tried every human possibility, and she was just getting worse. Now, just to remind ourselves, we're back on the other side of the sea, right? This is a nice Jewish community. She has been bleeding for 12 years. She is ceremonially unclean. She is not allowed to go into polite company. She is not allowed to go to even the women's part of the temple. She is not allowed to interact with other people because she is ceremonially unclean. What is she going to do? She's going to sneak up on Jesus. She had heard the reports 
about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. Just to make sure we understand, she's unclean. Jesus is now unclean, according to the Jewish law. More than that in just a second. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I snuck up behind him, I touched him, and it did the trick. Now all I've got to do is sneak away, and I will have accomplished something. Now, let's think about this. She's been bleeding. She is unclean. She just teach, touched Jesus. And by the way, there's a mob of people around here. She's not supposed to be in this mob of people. Why? Because every one of them she touches is unclean. She wants to sneak in and she wants to sneak out. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, That's a really stupid question. <laughs> That's not exactly what they said, but that is what they meant. You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched you? It's like you're walking into, pre-COVID, the cowboy game. And there's just a mob of people around you. And you're elbow to elbow. And you're kind of, I mean, you're, and you stop and go, wait a minute, who touched me? That's just a stupid question. His disciples are telling him this. Can you imagine? No, we won't go there. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, she was terrified. What was she terrified about? Number one, that he might take it back. Number two, that they might stone her for making him unclean. That they might stone her for, you know, making all of them unclean. That's what she was used to. That's what she had been living for 12 years. This rejection because of something she had no control over at all. That's what she was scared of. But she came to Jesus and told him the whole story. Now, let's just stop for a moment. There's lots of discussion about why the Jewish laws were given in the way that they were given in the Old Testament. The purification laws, the fact that if a woman is having her period, she can't touch anything and et cetera, et cetera. And there's all these rules. There is some discussion that they were doing it for health reasons, you know, a tight-knit community. We're worried about passing diseases. So if you have a skin disease, we're going to take you outside for a week, see how it happens and bring it. I mean, there's all these bizarre rules. And there's probably some validity to that. But there's also this idea that God is setting up a separate people. He is setting up people who are to be different, 
to be holy. Now, we know from reading the Old Testament, they usually didn't do a very good job of it. But that was the idea. But somehow the idea was me, if I'm unclean and I touch you, you become unclean. Let me let you in on a little secret. Nobody makes Jesus unclean. Jesus is this backwards. You touch Jesus and you don't pollute him. He heals you. And that's what the lady was finding out. She didn't make Jesus unclean. There isn't any force on this planet that is going to make Jesus unclean. At some point, Jesus is going to take the sins of the world upon himself. And he is going to give us the ability to be clean. We'll talk about that many, many weeks from now. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has, been, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith, your belief that drove you to come and pursue me, that has healed you. Faith. Disciples, why do you have such little faith? Woman, your faith. Hmm. More about that to come. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's too late. She already died. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You know, belief and faith are verb and noun. I mean, they're the same thing, okay? Don't fear, only have faith. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Remember, there's a crowd, there's a mob. First off, there's all the disciples. Secondly, there's the rest of the crowd. He's going to this guy's house. He can't take the crowd in there. So he takes this inner circle. We'll talk about them in more lessons to come. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing, and wailing loudly. Now, you know that at the time, people would hire professional mourners, okay? I mean, yes, the family is sad. But we want to make people know that something really bad has happened. So I go give a couple of bucks to some women down the street, and they can really mourn. They know how to do it, and they are hired. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, just as a general rule, laughing at God never works. But God is oftentimes very sympathetic about it. Who else do we know in the Bible that laughed at God? Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed. She was 90 years old. 
No, I'm not even going to talk about that. <laughs> she laughed. And then God said, why is she laughing? And Abraham said, oh, she's not laughing. You know what? Telling God he doesn't know what he's talking about, that doesn't work either. <laughs> now, I've actually thought about this sentence this week. Why? I know, and you know, that Jesus isn't going to lie, right? But this girl is dead. She's dead. You know, we sometimes think that we have modern medicine and modern science, and we're the only people who know what a dead person looks like. You know, Jesus on the cross wasn't really dead. They put him in the tomb, the cool weather in there. Yeah, it revived him, and voila, it looked like he was. No, he was dead. These people knew what dead looked like. This little girl was dead. Why did Jesus say, no, she's not dead? Because he knew what was coming. He knew that she was just resting for a moment because God had something to demonstrate. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Let's just stop right there. There's a crowd outside mourning because the little girl is dead. There is a whole community who knows that the little girl is dead. The little girl's going to school tomorrow. How are you going to hide that? But he tells them, don't tell anybody what I just did. This is another one of those strange thoughts. I have got an even stranger one in the next sentence. This is one of my strange thoughts. That little girl is going to walk outside. And some of those people who are outside are going to go, oh, she really was just sleeping. She really was just asleep. Ah. The parents knew, the disciples knew, Jesus knew, but when you're looking for an excuse to not believe in the miraculous works of God, you can find one. They're going to come up with something. But this mother and this father know that Jesus had just worked a miracle in this little girl's life. He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I'm not making this up. I have thought about that sentence for 20 years. Why? This girl was dead. Jesus put life back into her brought her back from the dead. Why didn't he bring her back from the dead with a full stomach? No, I'm, I'm serious. Why didn't he? Because he knew 
that the mother and father could take care of that part. He knows what they are capable, what they desire to do, what they want to do for their daughter. But he also knows that they can't raise her from the dead. That is what he and he alone can do. So you know what? Go home and feed somebody. They need it. But then pray for them and trust that God will raise them from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the miraculous deeds that you have performed. Thank you, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the faith to approach you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.